0: Hi and welcome to Backyard Pet Talk with Shannon Riley. My name is Emily and this is another edition of the Positive Puppy Podcast.
1: Hello everybody and hello Emily. Thank you so much for joining me again for your rapid fire questioning of how to raise Mr. Teddy and to help all the other people out there who are trying to raise puppies and not go crazy and enjoy their puppyhood because I always tell people puppies are like having newborns but you get to leave them home alone instead of having a babysitter so they are not easy and Teddy is now eight months is that right he'll be eight Eight. months next week yeah so he's eight months so now we're in kind of teenage land of puppies so we've gone through the baby baby stages and now we're kind of hitting into that teenage stage so probably lots of new questions that have to do with teenage puppies so and And as always you know Emily doesn't tell me these things ahead of time so (laughs) I just I'm ready for your questions
0: yes so we're gonna talk about one of your favorite subjects a thing that you speak internationally about (laughs) my dear friend Shannon body language, specifically in the realm of teenage puppydom, and socializing and fear. And so that's sort of our overarching theme for (laughs) the day. Do you think you might have something to say about (laughs) that? Sure. (laughs) Um, So my first question is, can you take us through the timeline of the adolescent fear periods? So I know that there was like, I think maybe at three months or something, like he was entering his fear
1: period. So when did that stop? Yeah. So the fear period, and this is all by textbook, you know, this is what we sort of as humans put together. So I always tell people dogs don't read textbooks. So it doesn't mean that this is very specific. It doesn't mean, you know, this has to happen, but usually between the first four months of life from birth to four months ish, they're in their socializing period. So typically in that period up until about four months, they. Can handle things. Their brain's a little more elastic, and so you would socialize them to things, and they don't necessarily become fearful of it forever. Between four and six ish months, they'll go through another fear period. That's their typically their first fear period. So that's where all of a sudden, you know, they get startled by the vacuum, and now they're afraid of the vacuum because the way their brain is developing, it's to teach them what to be afraid of in the world. You know, oh, that that could be dangerous. So as an adult, I might be more afraid of that. And then they'll kind of have a little break. And then somewhere around eight to 10 months, again, they have another fear period. That's the same kind of situation where if something scary happens, it can just hold on. I say like the brain holds onto it a little more tightly than if they were in their socializing period. But because we don't know exactly, the first year of life should be Lots of introductions. So even if it's after the first four months, they should still be going to new places, meeting new people, meeting new dogs, um, because that development is still happening. And if you stop at four months and do nothing because you're so scared of the fear periods, then you still do lose some of that exposure period. But you also want to make sure you're not, if they get scared of something, so say like they got scared of the vacuum because you left it in the middle of the living room and then they started barking at it. Well, Instead of just like hiding the vacuum for the rest of their life, you know, then what you might do is train them a little bit, put treats around the vacuum, let them kind of explore the vacuum, play games in the living room with the vacuum there, toss a ball until the vacuum doesn't really mean anything. And you might have to roll the vacuum eventually, but with high value treats and you're sort of desensitizing them. So in the future, they're not afraid. My dog, Captain's a really good example of something. I didn't realize that he had gotten fearful around four and a half months after his neuter. He had gotten a little scared when he was neutered. So he got picked up by the receptionist and he barked at her, but I didn't think anything of it. Just, you know, he got startled. And then after his neuter, after he was healed, I took him on a walk and my neighbor came and gave him a giant hug, but didn't sniff him. And he jumped back and barked at him too. I didn't really think because Captain had been so well socialized during that, his whole life because he was born at my house in rescue. I didn't think that would make a big difference. Then at about eight months, he started growling at men that didn't have a dog with him because he had gone to my classes. So he would see people with dogs and they were safe. But if they didn't have a dog, they weren't safe. And then it transferred to women too. And then it transferred to people with dogs and, and no matter if they had dogs or not. So it kind of progressed. That's when I stopped and I'm like, something happened. And I, because I knew every moment of his life, I pinpointed that the receptionist and my neighbor, they traumatized him. They didn't do anything intentionally to hurt him, but in his brain, he got scared. Had I been paying attention to that at the time, um, which I had already been doing, taking him back to the vet to give him treats for the receptionist. So we had already been working on the receptionist, but that's a very specific situation. But I had not been having strangers give him treats after that. And so I did. And now he's better with all of those things. But I, if I had caught it in the moment, I would have stopped and had my friend give him hot dogs. And I would have stopped by my neighbor's house every single day and say, give him hot dogs, give him hot dogs. And then every man I saw on a walk, give him hot dogs. And then he probably would have never had fear later because I would have fixed it earlier. And Captain has a mild genetic anxiety because his mom was a little bit nervous, but not severely. And he lived with her the longest before she got adopted out. So I should have done those things. So watching all those things, I should have acted immediately, like get right back on the horse idea. You know, if you fall off a horse, you get right back on. You need to do that with these puppies. And that might be just a bark at something that they never barked at before. And if they bark, that's one of those body languages, you know, of I'm a little scared, you know, especially their hackles go up, their tail goes down, any of those signs of anxiety, and they can be fleeting. They can just be for a second. I now am way more sensitive to that where I immediately go in and if a dog, even a puppy class gets scared of the tunnel that I, they're running through. Okay. Let's do that again right now. Like let's, let's not wait. Let's do it right now. And I do it with adults in agility. Now, if they fall off the teeter, let's get back on right now because I don't want it to percolate in their brain. If that makes sense.
0: I have one very specific follow-up okay. pro- uh, question. So It turns out that my back fence is the possum super highway and, and Teddy is developing fear of the possums. And so the only time he barks besides puppy class, you know, Uh when he's really excited about someone, he barks when he's overly tired and when there's a, he sees a possum in the backyard and I'm, Starting to pick up some hesitancy to go outside when it's dark out. And so like, let's leave behind the possum mitigation measures of, you know, like, are there deterrents or whatever, but like this feels a little different than the vacuum to me. Because Mm -hmm. possums are dangerous, right? I don't want him to be happy about a possum, but I also don't want to be have him be afraid of the backyard. So that was a very specific question. Oh,
1: that and it's true because that is something, it's not like the vacuum where we want him to do it. And that might be like they might be afraid of another dog on a walk, and now they're afraid to go on walks. Like people could have that there. And I have dogs who are afraid of going in the backyard because something happened at night. So it's it can be more generalized of things. So Um, aside from managing it as best you can, because, you know, we don't want him to meet the possums. One thing that you could do is start taking him out there, maybe at twilight before it's like dusk before it's too dark, but then progress to when it's dark too. But go out with hot dogs or whatever, like (laughs) steak. I mean, like take the big value, the highest value thing that makes him not think about the fact that he's outside like that it takes his mind off of it so you know if you kind of think about your most favorite treat that you would maybe try to you know walk a tightrope for because you really want it so much or something you really really like and you really want give him take that out with him and start out with just some easy fun things you know you could do sits um you know if he like spin if he knows tricks If he likes to chase balls, you could throw a ball really short, like one foot or two feet away from you. So he doesn't have to go too far from you. He gets a treat. If there's games that they like to play, you could sprinkle the treats on the grass. So he's sniffing for them. First, we want to work on having him just get, be used to be the backyard at night because there's a couple steps to this. So take him out at night and that maybe that's when you do some of your training, but it's when you have high value treats and an easy training you're not asking him to do a hard behavior a known behavior to start with so it's not stressful that gets him used to the dark because there won't be when you're out there training a possum probably isn't going to come on the fence because they're going to mm-hmm. hear you and they're they're not offensive you know they don't go they're more defensive they're not going to come and attack you and if they hear you they probably won't walk the fence So you could go out there and he'll be out there and nobody's going to be out there. So it's going to be fine. Then if you want to, and I had to do this for opposite reasons, captain, our old fence used to be a super highway, but it captain wanted to eat them and he would jump on the wall and then scare them off. And then I would have possums and babies and it was gross and I didn't want him to get bit by one. So then what you can do, because Teddy's different, he's afraid captain. I had to, you know, get him to not pay attention to them, but for teddy he's afraid so you could put something get like a stuffed animal that you could get a possum stuffed animal if you could get them i've never looked for those but i use a fake lemur stuffed animal so it looks like a possum on the fence and then i did my training with captain that way so you could get a little do it during the day at first though so you're not mixing night fear and yeah possums put the stuffed animal on the wall and if Teddy looks at it, you know, you like click and treat him for just looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. You probably won't be that afraid of it because it's not moving, but this is just setting up the foundation. Then go out and do that when it's twilight. And when he looks, click and treat, click and treat when he looks and looks at, at that, but he's not going to see it. He's just looking at it and not barking and he's looking at it and not being fearful. Then you could do move that up to the nighttime. Again, you wanna use the high value treats of it. If he barks at it because you have it really obvious, say so you put it in a really obvious place, then maybe put it kind of behind a bush a little bit or make it a little less obvious at first. But, cause he may look at it and be like, what is that? The other thing you wanna do is give him some distance. So you might start on your back porch and then move to the grass rather than starting right next to the fence and being on the grass so that he has distance so it's like, I think I see something over there, but it's not sure, but then going back and forth. And then that way he's also learning to look at you when he's scared or he's not sure. Right. So you're also teaching him like, hey, mom, there's something I'm not sure about. And that's where my fear to fun program, I call it, but people use a lot of different names for it. But I call it fear to fun because if something's scary, I want my dog to check in with me and say, is this something I should worry about or not? And 99% of the time it's no, you shouldn't worry about that. And then if it is a time that they're like, there's something over there, maybe it's a person I didn't see lurking behind the shadows. And then I can either give them a bark cue if I've taught that or I can leave, you know, like having that, but then not having my dog go ballistic at every person they see, but maybe he's not sure. So you're starting to teach him to look at you when he's not sure at a very early age, which is a nice behavior anyway. Yeah, my spidey sense tells me that he can smell the possums. Is mm-hmm. that possible? For sure, for sure. And that was one of the things that um and he might hear them kind of doing click 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 a little bit on the fence. So, we're starting with the visual because that's the easiest for us to do. I do not know, but I do know that there are scents for snakes because people do similar things like this for snake aversion. They teach them instead of hurting us dog, they do snake training. So they teach them to look at them instead of shocking them. You know, we do clickers, you can get snake scents, but you might be able to get like a possum pelt. Like it, you know, if you found a taxidermy place, I mean, it's not, not that you really want a taxidermy possum in your house, but you could use it for training, or you might be able to find somebody who has like a little possum skin, like some of the museums might have extra zoos might have extra Um, I know people who've done that for snake training. So that would be something you could do because it's hard to get the scent of them. Then you could do if you, if we still thought that there was a, a sound component of them, like clicking on the fence, you probably could record something making a sound, like maybe your fingernails clicking on the fence, put it on your phone and do it it won't be exactly the same but he might be able to generalize that but if we're looking at all those things the night there's a this is where people don't always look at my dog's afraid like somebody will say my dog is afraid of the possum and i'm like okay well that's fine but there's a lot of pieces to it is it the sound is it the smell is it the sight and it's also the fact that they come out at dusk or at night so now they're afraid of being outside it at night and those are all pieces and you can't do them all together because that can be overwhelming but you have to take each piece separate. Does that make sense? Totally.
0: It totally makes sense. And can you talk us through, like, what should we be looking for to identify fear? I feel like I'm so spoiled rotten because you're my friend. So I hear, you know, every time we go on a walk, you're like, that dog's afraid. That dog's not happy, whatever. Can you give us just like the super baseline things to be looking for to identify if your dog might be uneasy about something?
1: Yeah. And there's lots and lots of things that dogs do and every dog's individual. So sometimes it's knowing your own dog because some dogs' tails tuck really tight. Some just drop and you know that that's a problem. You know, a lot of times it's their ears because some dogs don't have tails. So we can't identify with the tail. Their ears are loose and floppy. What I, if I start from the nose to the tail, basically, I'm looking for relaxed eyes, relaxed mouth and relaxed ears. If I see like a a tight, almost like a smile, but closed mouth smile in a dog, that's usually they're getting a little nervous. Their brow might furrow. So between their eyebrows, you know, might furrow like we do. That can be just a real subtle sign of, I'm not sure. The ears may go back just a tad. Or flat against their body, their head, depending on how scared they are and what shape their ears are. I'm also looking at if their body's really tight. So if their whole body tightens up on um, their shoulders and they're walking really, you know, tight, if they're hyper-vigilant and they're looking all over the place, that could be excitement, but it could also be anxiety. And then when their tail goes down, you know, dropping their tail, tucking their tail those will all be some different signs. Hackles can go up, but they can also be stimulation. So sometimes in my puppy class, hackles go up because the dogs are having so much fun and their body hasn't quite figured out all that's what that sensory means. And so it, their hackles go up just because they're excited. Avoiding big things of like looking away might be something. If a dog tries to look away from something and then keep, looks at it side eye, that might be something else that they're doing. Avoiding. Some real subtle mouth signs are like licking their lips, just like licking their tongue, not like a big slurp, like they just drank water or ate, but like licking the tip of their nose almost just real quick and fast, like almost like a lizard would do. Then also yawning. If I see a dog yawn, then that is like, you know, if they're on a walk, they shouldn't be sleepy, you know? So it's a, it's a, it's a stress yawn. Full body shake usually happens right after they've experienced stress. So you've passed another dog and you're not sure if your dog wanted to do, see that dog. And then they shake off like they're wet. That's a big, my captain, that is his telltale. He could meet a dog that's friendly, but he's not sure if it's going to be friend or foe, friend or foe. So they meet, then they're friendly. Maybe they played when he was young or maybe they just ignore each other now, but then he'll do a full body shake. And then that means that was a little more stressful. Doesn't mean he went into full panic, but he experienced an increased level of cortisol, probably his heart rate went up and um, his respiratory rate went up for that time. And so it's almost like a deep breath. Excessive sniffing can also be a sign of stress, but it can also be the environment is very interesting. So yesterday I have, I have a client who has a very fearful dog. And she's been trying to take her on walks and things, but we just went on a really short walk around her block. And we let the dog intentionally sniff the whole time. I said, this is not a training walk. We are just letting her sniff. She is sniffing partly because that's helping her slow her heart rate and, you know, because she's got an increased breathing. So she's taking deep breaths. So it is a strategy for her stress, but I think she also was interested in all the smells that were there. So it was like a combo of she was stressed. How I know she was stressed is that I had given her a treat on her front yard and she took it. As soon as we walked outside the front gate, she refused treats the rest of the walk. If she was purely sniffing because she was interested in the environment, she would have still taken treats. The fact that she wouldn't take treats, she could barely respond to her name. She would, she would look at me so I could give her a little scratch but I couldn't, she would not take any treats, treats that she loves when she's in the house. So that was a sign that that sniffing, yes, she was sniffing the environment, but it was also because she was very stressed. So that's another, if they won't eat something, you know, that they're experiencing some stress and something to say about stress is sometimes we always try to avoid all stress, all stress don't, but a little bit of stress is okay because that builds resilience. So we don't want to put our puppies in a vacuum where they never experience anything because then if something happens, they're inexperienced and they can't be resilient, but we also don't want them going over threshold and being traumatized and now having a trauma event. So it's finding that balance when you have a puppy too, of letting them have a little stress like this dog, we walked around the block and we didn't fortunately see any dogs. We saw a couple people, but we didn't see any dogs. If we had seen a dog, we would have just retraced our steps and gone backwards so that and I said, just do that walk every day. And then eventually that walk will be as comfortable as your yard. And then she can start responding to you. Um, but we had to have her a little bit of a stress in order to expose her to the environment. So it was like finding that, but not to the point that she was in a full bone panic attack, if that makes sense to you.
0: Yeah, it makes so much sense. And, and just like as a civilian, you know, you just see these things like they're <laughs> night and day. To you so as a civilian for me the easiest things for me to pick up on are the body shakes and yeah. like so so number one the body shakes the yawning and the licking of the lips as those just sort of recently clicked for me and i've been seeing it so can you just explain like what a dog is doing when they shake because that's for me the most obvious thing that you can sort of key in on and say oh
1: something So what's awesome about this is, antidotally, we've always known that dogs did it after a stressful event. We just saw it. You know, We, as trainers and behavior people, we were all like, yeah, that dog experienced stress. And we just knew it because we saw it all the time. Finally, they did done a study and they monitored a dog's heart rate. The body shake actually decreased the heart rate. So, you know, the heart rate goes up, the monitor, they saw something scary. The monitor picked up an increased heart rate. And then the dog shook and then the heart rate dropped. So it's almost a lot like us taking a deep breath and relaxing our vagal tone, which, you know, I'm not sure if they know why it works yet, but they know it does work. So now that's the next step of science, right? Is to find out why if they, if they do it, but I have tested this on my own self at the doctor. So I have my pulse oximeter on my finger and it's showing because i'm a little nervous at the doctor you know my heart rate's like 90 and i'm like okay i'm resting this should not be 90 so while my doctor's doing something else or out of the room or whatever i'll take deep slow breaths like yoga breaths you know deep slow count up four hold four down four and i almost do it as a game to entertain myself i know it's kind of pathetic but it it's the the geekiness of me of understanding stress my heart rate will go down because I take these long, very purposeful breaths and then do stupid geek that I am. I also practice taking short, fast breaths and my heart rate would go up. And so I practice and I looked at it with my own heart. So when that came out with the dog monitor, I'm like, of course, because I can do it. I can monitor my own heart rate if I'm conscious, which is where yoga and meditation and all of this mental well-being is doing on humans but that's what dogs are doing so when we notice that we just need to take notice of what happened before that why did that happen so we can desensitize them to it so we can expose them to it so we get them used to it
0: excellent one last follow-up and then we'll move on Teddy seems he recovers very quickly like almost immediately if something startles him You know, and and we just had, like, those earthquakes, right? And so Mm -hmm. in real time, I was able to watch him, like, startle, and then, like, three beats later, he was like, okay, what are we doing now? Like, what's fun? So I feel like his resiliency is really high, and I just think that's just his outlook. Probably his
1: breeding, part of his breeding, because- as a potential service dog that he was bred to be potentially, they have to be resilient. They have to have that genetic trait. They can't be super flighty. You know, they have to be solid that way.
0: So, so how do I know when he's like over it?
1: You know, and that's one of the things like you've already known, like when he's too tired, when he's barking, because he doesn't really bark. Um, you know, but if he's barking, then you're like, okay, you know, maybe it's excitement. Maybe it's, you know, whatever. But it's also like, what did something just scare me? Another thing, like, I because I know Teddy well, like sometimes he does his big flop, like he lays on his belly and won't move. Now, sometimes he really likes a cold floor, like he's a black lab. So he really likes a cold tile. So that's comfort. But sometimes he's doing it because it's like, I'm not really sure where I'm going and what I'm going to do. So if any of you have watched any of his therapy work, when he goes and sees some people in therapy is that he, he used to flop on the grass and didn't really want to go. We had to coax him into the door. Well, now we jump out of the car and he pulls, he doesn't flop. He'll lay down sometimes if, if once he's a little hot or something, but he's like, you never have to, you're just like, come on, let's go. And he gets up, you know, it's not, he's not doing that protest that you know, because he knows what's in store. So that's one for him. Like if he might lay down and just, and not go, I think sometimes if he gets overstimulated, you know, he might become hypervigilant, but he has a pretty good resilience, you know? So, but it's even with a resilient dog genetically, it's still good to like challenge them a little bit. So like he's doing agility now and that's all challenging his resilience in very small baby steps, but he, so he keeps being successful, but he's, got to try something new and then try something new, which is why in my puppy class, I have all those things. They might be minor things, but when they become successful at it, it builds up resilience.
0: Mm-hmm. Excellent. You know, it's sort of following up on that, you know, he's an eight month puppy and this is kind of a weird way to phrase a question, but like, how do I know for sure that he is good with kids? Like how long does it have to be? Be of him like wagging his tail and being excited to meet a kid when I can confidently say and trust him, right? Because I'm still very really monitoring him, right? When we when Mm. we take him to go see his ladies at, at the memory care facility, right? We are very closely monitoring when I'm at Lowe's and he, and a kid comes to pet him. I am very closely monitoring. So when do I get to say like, no, I know my dog's good with kids and I don't need to be, I don't need to be hypervigilant.
1: So something about dogs and kids is pretty much always dogs and kids should be monitored to some degree as a safety measure because Kids can be unpredictable. So a kid may pull his tail or pull his ear that he's never experienced before. So there's always a chance of something, you know, a snap or something happening that you can't really predict. So, you know, always young kids should be monitored with any dog. It doesn't really matter because young kids can do things not intentionally to hurt dogs, but they can. And so that's just a caveat that I always tell people, you know, young kids, more because you're monitoring the kids. So even if it's a five-year-old dog, you're also monitoring the kids are not laying on the dog, stepping on the dog, pulling tails, you know, sticking their fingers in their ears or whatever, you know, because kids do weird things or taking things from them over and over. Cause I've had really solid dogs get snappy at dogs because the kids get into this game of take every toy that they get. And after a while the dog gets frustrated and then might bark or snap at them. And then all of a sudden it's the dog's fault. But it wasn't. I mean, it'd be like if you kept taking all my stuff, I'm going to snap if you keep taking my things, So but in general, a lot of times when we do therapy work at about two, you kind of know. So you've gone through the baby times because between one year and two years is usually when if I'm going to see a dog who's going to have some aggression issues or reactivity issues or fear, like major fear that affects their livelihood. You know, they're barking at everybody, they're growling, they nip somebody, they um, they shut down. It's usually between a year and two, like as they become mature. And so that's when I commonly see people privately for those issues. So if you wait through that after they're two, then you kind of have a better idea of what they're gonna be like. And some um, therapy organizations won't even let you do therapy until they're two. They won't, even if you do a Canine Good Citizen at a year, they make you retest at two because, you know, so much can change in that year. So um, two is probably a good time, but even then if there were toddlers or small kids, I would just watch them. And I could say even for my dogs, if we have a bunch of teenagers here that are really wild and feeling things, I don't, I'd have my dogs stay in the bedroom if I can't monitor them. Because even teenagers can do, you know, mean things to dogs if they're not around dogs a lot or they're scared. Like when my kids have a bunch of friends over, the dogs just stay in my bedroom when the people are here. But if it's only one or two that I know are cool with them, then I don't worry about it as much.
0: Yeah. Is there any way to predict behavior? And so my specific example is, you know, Teddy has never like gotten out of the house, right? He's never like accidentally like gotten through a gate or gotten through a door. And with Scooter, he was so fearful and so anxious that I had like no flight risk from him, right? Yes. If if somehow he got out, he would get back in because that's the best place to find me. So like, is there any way to predict like how a dog might approach a situation that we don't ever want them to approach just so maybe we could be prepared for it?
1: It is sometimes you can tell like the super wild dogs that are really hyper all the time that are running around that are always at the door looking to try to leave the door. They might be more likely to, you know, the more super confident, super high energy dog might be more likely to run out of a gate and a fence. Also ones that are more curious. I'm thinking of one of my clients who has a Cocker Spaniel, who's like all about her nose. She should do tracking 100%. She would be awesome at it. Like that my dog might leave, not because she wants to run away, but because she caught a smell or a bird or a squirrel or something. But the fearful dogs, I do tell people, you usually don't have a problem with them running away. They have great recall. You know, they don't usually pull, sometimes they'll pull on leash because they're afraid of the environment, but they're not trying to leave you. So those will be. But then there's that middle term, and it just depends. Like if Teddy saw a dog out the fence, and the fence was open, he might go run to go see the dog because he he likes the dog. Or if it was a person he wanted to see, he might run out there. And like I always have, I my favorite breeds are Labs and Jack Russells. So I always have Jack Russell, And Jack Russells would be a notorious breed that people would stereotype that would run out the gate or the door. But my Jack Russells were always, my younger Jack, my first Jack Russell when he was younger did run sometimes to go fence fight because that was his favorite hobby in the whole world. Except that the gate opened and he was like, oh, hi friend. So purely it was just the joy of a fence fight, not actually fighting. <laughs> um, so it was quite annoying because it was like, you're not actually wanting to do anything. You're just talking a lot of talk and it was bad. I always teach my dogs to sit, stay at the front door. And sit, stay at gates, and to the point where I have them sit, stay, and I eventually can leave the door open and they're off leash and I can be places. So that's where I prevented it. Like my current Jack Russell and my lab, I, well, my lab got out when he was a puppy because he followed my other lab, who got out the gate purely because he found a scent and he was fearful, but something smelled good and the gate got blown open and then Captain just followed him and we found them and it was fine. But now, Cause we moved since then. And one time my door got left open while we were moving and I Jack Russell and my lab were just sitting on the porch, just waiting for, you know, me to come back. I had a heart attack, but they did fine. They don't even really try, but my old Jack Russell, if a cat would have gone by or another dog, that would have been a lot harder. So I had to practice that with him. So it's always good to practice, sit, stay at a door. Um, and just because if the right trigger came by, Like say I came to your house and your front door was open, Teddy might run out because he's like, oh, I know that person, but he should learn to stay at the front door for safety purposes.
0: Yeah, sit, stay at the front door is such a great, just like practical and safety. Yeah, and a fence is,
1: you know, because you never know if a fence is gonna blow open in a wind or blow down, you know, or something. Or even just like practically, you're bringing the groceries in. Exactly. Oh, it's so nice to like, be able to go in and out of the door and not have to worry that my dog's going to run out. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome.
0: Thank you. Okay. A little bit of a shifting gear. Okay. Can you talk us through super big picture, how to introduce new things?
1: So new things should be a regular, especially with a puppy, you can take them somewhere every single day. That's great. If you can't then, you know, multiple times a day. So New things are new people, so we'll just start even with specifics. So so men with beards, men with hats, big jackets, little jackets, sombreros, like helmets, anything and sometimes you can use the same person. So when I was doing this with Captain when he was younger, I had somebody walk with a big giant jacket on like puffer jacket. you couldn't tell who it was. I had them use crutches. I had them use walkers. I had, you know we just did all kinds of stuff. I even used the same person from a distance because, It was easier. But then you have people come in with sunglasses, people, you know, because you never know what is going to be weird to a dog. Pregnant women, kids on shoulders, kids on backs, kids in backpacks, strollers, like all those things we just take for granted that are just like, oh, that's a kid on a backpack or that's a kid on their shoulder to a dog. That looks like a two headed person. So that can be, you know, kind of scary. So that one's a big one that you can do fairly easily because you can take them to Lowe's, you can take them to Green Thumb, you can take them to Home Depot, you can take them. Some Macy's allow you to bring dogs. Like you, some stores, depending on your region, restaurants, you know, are some are more dog friendly than others, just depending on your region. Then visiting other dogs is a little harder just because you want to make sure they're good dogs. So if you have friends or family that has good dogs that they can have play dates with. um, That's why I do my puppy class, why they get to play, you know, sometimes dot people in the puppy class exchange numbers and they start playing. If you have a good daycare that you know that your dog will be safe at, because not all daycares are safe. Sometimes you can find parks or even dog parks that, you know, a certain time of day that the same dogs go or different, or, you know, it's safe. But I always say with dog parks and parks, walk by, look at what, how the dogs are playing. If there's inappropriate play, just don't let your dog, play there that day. And I used to have to do that a lot when uh, my dogs were younger, as I just like, ah, I'm not going to stop here because there's, those dogs are playing really rough and I don't want my dog in the middle of that. But then places are also something big. And this comes up with something I talk to a lot of people who adopt dogs, whether there's puppies or adults. I have people who say, I want to go camping with my dog and they never do anything to prepare for camping. So then all of a sudden the dog is sleeping in a tent, you know, in a strange place on all these things. So. I tell people, go hiking in lots of different environments so that there's dirt and there's grass and there's, take them to lots of environments. If you plan on camping, do some day camping with them. So go to one of the campgrounds that you can just stay for the day, picnic, let them get used to it so you can go home. Then if you wanna go camping, you take them, whether you're in a RV or a tent, take them for one night, be close to home so you can take them home if it goes bad. And then you can take them back and expose them to all of those things. Don't just expect them to be able to be in that new environment. That also means like going to your vet office for fun visits on a regular, like once a week, just go in, do a cookie visit, no, and then leave. Because that's somewhere they have to go all the time. Going to different stores, going to different restaurants. Sometimes I have one client that we're working on restaurants right now. And sometimes that is a matter of, going to the restaurant and, and sitting and only getting like French fries. I went with a client to one place and we just got French fries and a drink because if it went bad. We could just pay the bill and leave. You know, we didn't have to stay for all the courses, lower your expectations so they can be successful. And thank you, Emily, for being on with us again. And until next time, we'll see you and Teddy. So bye everybody. Thanks for joining us.